Well, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll be in John chapter 4 today. And we'll be taking a look at a very popular, very famous passage of Scripture in John chapter 4, in which Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob there in Samaria. And so it's a, it's a powerful story. It's profound. And we're just going to take kind of a high-level view of it and see what, what Jesus was proclaiming about himself. The conclusion of the crowd, which becomes the, the title of the sermon I'm bringing you today, is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so, indeed, we're going to look at what does it mean that he is a Savior of the world? What did he bring to, uh, to bear that day? What did he promise, and what are the implications of it? So we'll begin by uh, taking a look in John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 42. We're going to read it a chunk at a time. But I want to consider something, and, and in doing this, um, we realize this is really the bulk of the chapter is a conversation between Jesus and this woman. A large part of the chapter is that conversation, and then the rest of the chapter is what happens as a result of that conversation. And so I, I took the opportunity to research and read some about life-changing conversation. And I'm not going to bring you a lot of that, but I assure you there is a lot of it. If you search for life-changing conversations, you will find a, a myriad of articles and, and entire sites devoted to the issue and how even non-spiritual things, how, how even non-scriptural things that the world experiences the truth that conversations can change lives that conversations can change the entire course of, a, of, of an individual or even a community or a nation. And so this idea of conversation changing someone's direction and, and making a, a big difference in a life is something that touches the lives of each and every human being. Conversations can save lives. Conversations can end lives. Conversations can begin relationships. They can end relationships. But with Jesus Christ, conversations have even higher stakes than life or death. And that's what we're going to see precisely here in this chapter today. We're going to see that conversation leads people, God uses that to lead people to eternal life. And through conversation, we can even lead others to eternal life in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Jesus' example here in uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to learn this, this one major point today, and it's simply this, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to bring eternal life, genuine worship, and transcendent purpose. And as those are three things that we'll see out of this chapter. You can find many more when you study it, but those are three we'll take a look at, and we'll begin by looking at the first 15 verses in John chapter 4. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this account. We thank you for the servant of your, your servant, John, who recorded these things for us. We thank you for this woman and, and the opportunity you granted her and the, the faith she exercised, Lord. We praise you for it. And today we desire earnestly to learn from it and to be shaped by it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have a, a fascinating uh, piece, a fascinating uh, conversation. And Jesus began with something unexpected. He spoke to her. He spoke to her. And that was something unexpected. And, and we'll have more as we get further down in our outline when we get to the, the third point in particular of the, this being a transcendent purpose he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. It even alludes to that in the text that there was a strong division there. He was a rabbi. She was a woman. We'll explain that later too. In fact, any faithful Jewish man would not be found having too much of a conversation with a woman, not his wife, especially a woman of ill repute, as we'll find out she indeed is. And so it was a surprise to her that indeed he had spoken with her. And she even expresses that surprise in verse 9 by saying, you know, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And his answer is very interesting. In, in verse 10, he begins to answer this, and he begins immediately with a puzzle, with an illustration. He starts talking about living water. He makes a connection to their situation in they're getting water from a well, and he uses that immediately to make an analogy. And her curiosity is piqued. He obviously has no water, nothing to draw with, but yet he suggests that he has a water that will cause someone not to ever thirst again. Now in verse 12, this was a well of Jacob. It was a point of pride for the Samaritans that they had this well, that for these, these long 1,500 or uh, 2,000 years that they had been in that area, that indeed they knew this was Jacob's well. It was still here to be found. But Samaria, with the northern kingdom, they had some of their own sites. Now, Jerusalem, they had the temple. They had all the proper priests. They had the, the history of the, the true and the first kings of Israel. And they had a few sites of their own. 
and some of them could be traced back like this one. And so she says very proudly in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, that's a very interesting question, and it's not the only one that John brings up like that, because in John chapter 6, he speaks of the fact that he's greater than Abraham. By implication, when he introduces the gospel, he says, well, like the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's suggesting that Jesus Christ is the greater, the fuller, the, the latest revelation. And we see elsewhere in the uh, other Gospels, in Luke and Matthew, he compares himself to Solomon and says something greater is here. And he compares himself to Jonah and says something greater is here. And so she asks him, are you greater than Jacob? And his answer, and like I've suggested in other sermons, I believe he answers everything. His answer is yes. Because he says, well, I'm not just going to give you a well with water that you have to to dip the thing out of, I'm, I'm presenting to you the opportunity of living water. Now, I want you to think about the fact, you know, how is it that we deal with, with things like this and, and prideful things? And it occurred to me that, you know, it, I don't know that we know for sure where that well is today. If we do know where it is, I'm very surprised that Christians aren't marketing water from Jacob's well as some kind of a a thing to help you and to bring a blessing upon you or, or something else. And surely if we had here, you know, some kind of, well, oh, Abraham drank from this well one time. Oh, great. Let's bottle that up and sell it. We could make a profit for the Lord. But what he is talking about, he makes very plain. He defines what the living water is. And he talks about it and defines it it's eternal life. And so we see this down here. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is speaking of eternal life. And eternal life is a major theme in the Gospel of John. And at some point, we'll get to the fact that Jesus called himself the life. We've already seen that in him was light, and the light was the life of men. And that he uses this word life often, and he speaks of eternal life very often. Life, the word life appears in John 47 times in the 21 chapters. And of those, a majority of them, he is speaking of this eternal life. And as we saw when we began our study, that in John chapter 20, verse 31, as he states his purpose for writing the gospel, he says, they're written why? That you may believe and have life in his name. And after mentioning life a good number of times and, and the gospel develops and it comes to this peak point when the, the people are resisting him, they're plotting against him, they're going to arrest him and kill him, he takes his disciples out on the night of the Passover and he begins to explain to them how they're going to make it without him. He begins to reveal that he's going to be taken and crucified and everything else. And then he says a prayer for them. And in that prayer, at this crescendo of the gospel, just before he's arrested, he defines eternal life. And he defines it this way. He begins, and we'll get the context here from verse 1, when he begins his prayer, when Jesus had spoken these words, that is chapters 14 through 16, he said to the gospels, or to the disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given you given him and this is eternal life so it's important it's defining it here for us that they know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent so he defines eternal life in terms of relationship in terms of how it is that we can know Jesus Christ and we can know the Father and know them in this personal and intimate kind of way. And in fact, later in the prayer, he prays for a unity among the disciples and for the disciples to be unified with him and the Father in such intimacy as is found between the Father and the Son themselves. Now, some would say that, you know, well, when Jesus spoke of eternal life, he was speaking of, you know, just very simply the, the, the concept of having an abundant life or the concept of having the, the privilege of knowing God and relating to God properly. But the problem is with that view that Jesus attaches eternal life specifically to resurrection specifically to an eternal dwelling with himself. In John chapter 3, it's set in contrast to perishing, that those who believe in him have eternal life, but those that don't are, will perish. In John chapters 5 and 6, he clearly talks about the resurrection, that he will raise up those whom the Father gives him. In John chapter 14, the first three verses of that, he says, don't, don't be anxious, don't worry, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place, I'm going to come and get you and take you to where I am so that you'll be with me forever. He's clearly speaking of living eternally and living in a resurrected body. He is preparing a place for his disciples to be with them forever. So what Jesus clearly offers this woman and what he clearly offers us and what we offer to the world as his disciples is a solution to the single greatest threat against all humanity of all ages and all places on the earth. He's offering life. And the reason why I don't, I mean, when we really think about what that means, we should really be freaking out about this. And how incredible this opportunity is. But the simple fact is we live with death. We're used to death. Everyone that has come and has been born has died, except the ones presently here. And we fully expect from all accounts and from all our history and from all our knowledge that they'll all die too. And we take that as the status quo. So when something so lofty comes to us as the fact that there can be eternal life, it kind of just, it kind of pings off our armor. We kind of don't notice, we don't understand because we can't comprehend. If there were eternal life, do you realize you could go and visit Aristotle? If there were eternal life, you could go meet Julius Caesar and see if what Shakespeare said about him was true. If there were eternal life, we could hang out with Augustine. We could hang out with Paul and John. We could hang out with Jesus himself. So 
So it's something to think about how radical this is, what he is suggesting. He's offering life. At the beginning of the scriptures, death enters the scene and it comes by sin. But what Jesus is saying is that he, and, and at the point he comes, do you realize he's 4,000 years into this mess? 4,000 years before he has this conversation with this woman. Sin comes into the world, and since then, everybody had died. She had 4,000 years of reliable history. We're all going to die. Just a fact of life. And he comes in and he suggests, I'm the one that's going to change all that. I'm the one that's going to turn that around. Death comes into the scene when they, when they eat of the fruit that they were not supposed to eat of, of the knowledge of, of, from the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. And the Bible even accounts the end of death itself. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. In 21, verse 4, wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And in those last chapters of the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, all human beings receive a resurrection. But some are resurrected just to face judgment, condemnation, and the lake of fire. And others are resurrected to enjoy eternal life on a new heaven and new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ present. Do you see how big this is? That this is a hinge point of all of history. A hinge point of the, the account of all of history given in the Bible. Beginning with him, we begin to move back toward God's design. Back toward garden conditions. And I think this is why it tends to go over our head. And why as we read on, we'll see it kind of goes over her head. You know, oh, eternal life welling up, you know, water welling up to eternal life. Yeah, whatever. Hey, I got a question for you. And so it, it kind of, she's unable to fathom, like indeed we are unable to fathom the weight of what he's talking about. But he keeps going. He doesn't give up because what he is going to do is he's going to make her a little more thirsty for eternal life. And he's going to do it. Ready for this? Now, y'all know polite conversation, right? You've got the holidays coming up. You're going to be around the table with, with your family and friends and, and you're going to be celebrating with them and everything else. And there are certain things you just don't talk about. And here's Jesus. What's he going to do in order to bring the conversation further along for her to build her faith? He's going to bring up her sin. Let's take a look at this. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. You see, he brings this up knowing full well what's going on. Of course he knows about this. The woman says, I have no husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five. The one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to her, 
and this is one of the great, like, you know, one of the great understatements of the scriptures right here. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> For who could possibly know she's had five husbands? Uh, clearly someone from out of town. Probably didn't even have the Samaritan accent, whatever that was. Clearly dressed as a rabbi. She clearly identified him as a Jew. This guy's not from around here. Oh, he knows I have five husbands. Is my reputation that horrible now? Or is this a prophet? And so she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers, now now she changes the subject because <laughs> the subject got a little hot and close with the sin thing. She says, okay, uh, you're obviously a prophet. Let me ask you a question. And you might get this as being a believer in Jesus Christ, especially in the workplace or in other places where you're surrounded by people that aren't believers in Jesus Christ. They find out that you're a Christian. They got questions for you. And for me, it's like 10 times worse because they find out you're a preacher. And all of a sudden, people have questions for you. And some of the questions, just incredible. But uh, she changes a, the subject to a religious issue. And she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say, and that, that's you Jews, it's the implication. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." You, meaning you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Can it be any more plain? Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So fascinating. What we see is Jesus now kind of transitions to this, I'm bringing genuine worship here. We're going to get real. And I'm going to get real about your sin. And then we're going to get real about how you really relate to the Father. And that's in spirit and in truth. So he says, go call your husband. He calls her out. She'd had repeated marriages. Uh, she was currently in an improper relationship because she was with a man that was not her husband. And he knows these things. How can he know? And so she reckons him a prophet. Because he knows these things, yeah. But also because he's not afraid to point them out. If you think about the biblical prophets and what they were like and what they wrote about, part of their assignment from God was to come to the covenant people of God, to the people of Israel, and say, you're messing up, here's what you're doing wrong, now turn back to the terms of the covenant, and God will restore things. And so it was part of their job to step on toes. First, by pointing out their sin. And so she tries to change the subject. Okay, well, you're obviously a prophet. 
Let me ask you a question. Where's the right place to worship? And I want you to see this, and I want you to read this chapter again and again this week and consider how Jesus handles this encounter. He takes this religious question, this religious dispute, and he elevates it to another level. You're worried about whether we ought to worship here, we ought to worship in Jerusalem. Woman, I tell you the time is now here. Coming in is now here when it's up here. It's spirit and truth. It's something better than a place. And by doing so, he teaches us an important lesson. Because when people find out you're a Christian, they'll say, oh, what do you think about like, you know, what do you think about gambling? You know, what do, what do you Christians, what do you think about drinking? I've heard some of you are really against that, some of you whatever. And each and every opportunity, and whatever the question is, you can take it up to a bigger question. And you could say, the question you're really asking is, how is it we properly relate and can know God? Why not? Jesus elevates it from above this, to, to go above this religious practice question to gospel truth. And those matters are important, like where we worship and how we worship and, and the kind of behavior that we ought to accept from ourselves. Those things are important. But Jesus elevates it to worshiping in spirit and in truth. So let's talk a little bit about what he means by worshiping in spirit and in truth. When he talks about worshiping in spirit, I will tell you to go back to John chapter 3 and remind yourself that he tells Nicodemus, we must be born again or born from above. And we see here, he plainly states, God is spirit. And to Nicodemus, he's contrasting flesh and spirit. Okay, we're all born of the flesh, we're born of the water, but you also have to be born of the spirit. In other words, until this rebirth, until this birth from above happens, we're unable to properly relate to God because we're spiritually dead. Paul tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the rebirth then gives spiritual life and enables that connection to be made with God who is spirit. And the question has to come to us, and I think we'll conclude with a pretty clear answer, can the spiritually dead worship at all? Can we really call it worship? Because we know there's a lot of other religions, a lot of other faiths, and they don't have in themselves this, this rebirth in Jesus Christ by faith in him. And yet they're attending services and they're doing things and rituals and everything else. They pray, they sing. Is it not going anywhere? The hard truth is that it's not going to God. It's going to some other thing. Maybe just a delusion in their mind. Maybe another spiritual entity, but it's not going to God. All paths do not lead to the same destination. And if you don't believe me, just walk out the doors and start turning corners.
don't know where you'll end up. Worshiping in the spirit means connecting with God in his very essence, which is spirit. And this is impossible for those who remain spiritually dead. Now, there are different ways to satisfy the flesh and to entertain the mind that can mimic spirituality. And as a matter of fact, many people that are even in the church are not worshiping in spirit. They're satisfying some urge of the flesh, some need they have for community, some need they have for encouragement, some need they have to connect with other human beings, but they're not really connecting spiritually to God. This is how it is that they could be moved even to tears without being saved. We could have emotional experiences. And if you don't believe me, Go to a concert of some kind, a big concert, okay? Not your little local fella down there at the courthouse or whatever. No, go somewhere where there's a thousand people screaming their heads off at somebody who plays music. And I can attest, I've seen spiritual experiences at Ozzy Osbourne concerts. Come on. Worshiping in spirit is actual communion with God. And he says worshiping in spirit, but he also says worshiping in truth. And the question is this, can you have true worship with something you don't know? What would earthly relationships, and it's hard for us to say that and think about things of God, so sometimes it's good. Let's bring it down a level to something we can relate to and understand. What would your earthly relationships look like if you constantly related to someone according to the wrong name? What would your, happen to your relationships if you said the exact same words to a person every time you saw them? And even beyond that, maybe you say different words all the time, but you never give them an opportunity to speak. Or you never listen to what they have to say. How far would that go in your marriage? Maybe you're like me and said, I, I told you I loved you when we got married. If it changed, I'll let you know. That's clearly not good enough. It's clearly not good enough. And how does it make you feel when people call you by the wrong name? You ever been in one of those awkward situations or they, they confuse you with someone else? I get that a lot because I, you know, wherever I go, I look like I work there. And <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's the way I dress. Maybe it's my generic appearance. There's nothing distinct about me. And, and there's a hundred guys, at least in this county, that look exactly like me. So I constantly get confused for other people. And it's a little awkward. I think God feels when we're not only wrong about him, we're not interested enough in him to search out the truth, to get it right. Worshiping in truth is informed worship. It's worship that accords with the spiritual reality of who he is. There is but one true God. And he is certain things, and he is not certain other things. And worshiping in truth improves the likelihood that this is going to be true spiritual worship too. 
And so at the end of the passage we just read, she goes away and she's somewhat believing. And the question is, you know, was it the sign that the things he knew about her or was it the bold things she said about her or was the spirit at work there? I'm not really sure. She walks away and, it, and she begins to speak about the fact that he knew all about her. Come see this guy. He told me all about me. Could this be the Christ is her question. She immediately begins to bring people to see him. What a sign she was given. And what a testimony to her faith that she immediately goes and begins to ask good questions. Well, I want to move on to the next point here. The next point is simply this. He came to bring transcendent worship. Uh, that's supposed to say transcendent purpose. Transcendent purpose. And I believe it's correct in your notes. And what do I mean by transcendent? Well, let's go to the Oxford English Dictionary. To The verb form of it means to be or go beyond the range or limits of something. and Or to surpass something. To go over. Okay. In an adjective form, which I have it presented here, transcendent purpose, it means transcending normal or physical human experience. And when this word is used of God, it refers to the fact that he's existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. And by implication, since he's not subject to the limitations of the material universe, that means he can go where he wants. He can bridge the gap. He can reach across whatever barriers there might be. And this is important to consider here because there are barriers transcended by Jesus here. I don't know if I have a slide for those. No, I don't. But they're in your notes. The first one is religious. We notice Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They had a centuries-old, many centuries-old split of the kingdom. About a thousand years before this takes place, there was a then a very serious corruption of Samaria, which was the northern kingdom. Samaria was their capital. Then there was a defeat of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians over 700 years prior to this conversation. And in that instance, what happened was the Assyrians took a bunch of the Jewish people out and put a bunch of foreigners in there. See, the events that are happening today in Israel have deep, deep historical roots. And so all these foreigners are moved in there and they brought their faiths with them. They brought their gods with them. And while the Samaritans tried to toe the line and, and still hang on to some of the truth of, of the first five books of the Bible, of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses as they're known, they also incorporated into their worship and their ideas and their thinking these other foreign religions. But Jesus reaches across that. And he says, you know, it's not a matter of whether it's here, or whether it's in Jerusalem, it's greater, it's spirit and truth, and I'm that guy. He also breaks a gender barrier here. He speaks to a woman, which, you know, any Jewish man or rabbi probably shouldn't be talking to a woman, especially a woman of her reputation. Now, Jesus here is not setting an example for us men that we should be in the habit of speaking to women alone. Jesus was alone with her for a very short time in a very public place 
with the disciples returning immediately. He also crossed a moral boundary, a moral barrier that he got over by bringing this woman's history up and continuing to speak to her. It's thought, as you read the, the commentators about this passage, you'll find that many of the commentators talk about the fact that this woman's getting water at midday. It's not a smart time to get water in a, in a warm environment like they had. They would generally get the water in the early morning. And all the women, uh, you know, all those managing a household would go out and get for themselves the water in the morning when it would be cooler. They could get the water. They could walk back without breaking too much of a sweat early in the morning. She's out here in the middle of the day all by herself. Why? I think it's because there were a whole bunch of people who weren't her biggest fans in the city. Probably a myriad of women who hated her, probably at least four, for stealing their husband. He also crosses this divine mortal barrier, which is profound and probably the most overlooked here. Because here is God incarnate. The word become flesh, dwelling among us, as John said in chapter 1. He comes here and he is speaking to one of his creatures. God reaches across that barrier all the time in the person of Jesus Christ, in the word of God, and in the church, his body. But so many times people kind of bemoan the fact, why doesn't God speak to me? Why isn't God reaching out to me? What has God ever done for me? Why doesn't he call me to himself? Well, here it is. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And no one, at least hearing this today, can say that he hasn't called you because his word has been proclaimed and the implication is come. And then there's this great evangelistic privilege of believers that we have to be on the front lines of God-saving souls. Let's go back to our scriptures for a moment. And let's take a look at what happens next. So she goes in, come see a man who told me all I ever did can this be the Christ. And many went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, now remember, is it, the whole passage starts. He is tired. They're weary. They've been hiking probably for at least six hours. And they, they say, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered in 
to their labor. Jesus makes us harvesters. That we go and proclaim the word of God, and guess what? Some are going to believe. And why are they going to believe? Well, did we sow the seed? No. I mean, in his parables, the seed is the word of God, but we know it's God who gives the increase. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where he says this, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. See, God's got human beings involved and his church involved in this bringing people to himself to so be saved. And now I want us to consider as we look at John chapter 4, why is there so much detail in John chapter 4? This is one woman. This is one whole chapter of a mere 21 chapters that John was inspired to write down concerning the life and work of Christ. Since so many words are dedicated to it, and since it is, is so detailed, maybe the Holy Spirit wants us to take a really close look and think about what this means. It's a living discourse concerning the mission of Jesus and his disciples. There could be a whole series. In fact, there's probably entire books written on this chapter to explain to us how is it that we share this message? How do we reach across those barriers? How do we get the, the point across? And what is it that we have to bring across? What is this eternal life? And what does that mean? And what is this worshiping in spirit and in truth? And we look at this passage as indeed, yes, Jesus is a great example in this passage. But you know, so is this woman. She's a great example because despite her past, despite everything else, and, and the, the way she should feel about herself and her sin and everything else, and the obvious conviction that she should have regarding her sin, she immediately gets to the work of asking others to come check this out. I know at least one person that that puts to shame. And he speaks to you. The teaching is very clear. We inherit this work. He says in verse, uh, in, in the last verse that we looked at, that we enter into this labor. We get to partake. And the Samaritan woman immediately partook. And when we look at John 4.42, it doesn't stand alone. It's in this gospel. And if you read in the last chapter, John the Baptist kind of has this principle where he says, no, it's not about me, it's about him. You know, People are saying, hey, some of the disciples are kind of leaving you and going to him, and he's baptizing more than you now. And he's like, he's the one that's got to increase, I must decrease. And isn't this what is being said at the end of this passage? They say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They say this to the woman. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See that? You don't need to convince people. You cannot convince people. You bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. You bring them to the Word of God. Let God deal with them. And that's indeed what they say. You know, hey, it's not, you know, the woman's like, it's, it's not about me. <laughs> and the people acknowledge, yeah, it's not about you. We don't believe because of what you said, because frankly, you don't have such a great reputation. But we heard what he said. And we're in. 
Kirk Cameron asked a question. If you had the cure to cancer, would you share it? You have the cure to death. Get out there and share it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, this message comes to a variety of people. Each one of us at a place that you fully know well, just as you knew this woman's past and you knew everything that she had done, yet you spoke to her anyway today. You speak to us regardless of our past, each of us in a different place, some already in relationship with you and needing to make the next step. Some of us, Lord, have not taken the first one yet. Lord, we pray that you'll grant each and every person what they need to move forward in faith in Jesus Christ. We pray you'd give us the faith to repent of our sins. Lord, we know what they are. We need only to confess those to you and determine not to go back to them, but to turn to you for salvation instead, to turn away from our sins, to turn to you, who indeed promised to heal us, promised to cleanse us, promised to give us this eternal life in which we can dwell with you and with the Father forever. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith to make a move today. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to ring these words uh, in our ears through the coming week. We pray, Lord, that indeed you would be known through them, that you would work in us a good and lasting change because of what you've taught us this day. Lord, I pray that you'll make yourself known, that you'll be glorified in your people, that you'll walk with us out of this place to embolden us, to share the gospel truth with people that many may believe. For Lord, we must believe and we must know from the example that you've given, from the things that you've said, that you're already at work in the world and that you're already at work in many of the people to whom we will open our mouths, Lord, and we need merely to invite them to Jesus, to share the gospel truth, to declare repentance of sins, for salvation. I pray, Lord, that we will be emboldened. We will be perfected and that we will be glorifying to you who ultimately, Lord, will win it all. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.